Galatians in the book of Galatians in chapter 5. I will confess to you, in case you didn't pick up on it last week, this is just part two. This is not a different sermon. This is just part two of last week's sermon. And I, I love to be able to take these times and just to soak in that and dwell in that. When God gives us our good portion for the week and he says, that's enough. That's your stopping point. I'm like, okay, God, I'm reminded I'm not in control of this thing. Brother Toby Powers taught me well one time by saying, he said, I just, I'm, he said, I'm not in control of this church. He said, I'm just up here in order to make sure you don't think you're in control of this church. And uh, I have had to chew on that many a times. And uh, the more that I live this life, the more that I am blessed to be able to pastor a, a group of folks, the more that I realize that's just it. I ain't in charge. But sometimes it's a reminder nobody else is in charge of this either, that God is in charge. And y'all, that's just a humbling experience. But that's a wonderful experience to know that it all belongs to him and what he does. And we continue that truth in the book of Galatians. That's ultimately similar to the same truth that Paul has been communicating all along. Have you been noticing that, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that Paul continues especially to cash in on his relationships? That's what he's doing. If you've ever been in the world of politics, I've learned just by watching others. I'm not in that world, but I've learned by watching others that most of it's done through relationships. You wind up with this one, knowing this one, who's knowing this one, and knowing that one, and knowing this one, and it seems to be that's the way the world of politics survives is you might have to have some money every now and then. I understand politicians run on money, but more than anything, they run on relationships. But I can use that as a negative example. Somebody could browbeat the politicians, but it's not just them. Beloved, in every walk of life, it's on the basis of your relationships with others. Most people in this world will get a job because they know somebody. It's not just on your resume, but it's because you knew somebody. Maybe you have to have a good resume. Sure, it's not to have a bad one, but it's ultimately because of who you know. The greatest relationship that you have in this world is on the basis of whether you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to know him. It's not an option. You have to stick to him. It's not on the basis of who else comes into this congregation. Now, beloved, if the Lord was to bless us and the Lord was to begin to bring more people in here, things will change. There won't be the same things. We're not changing on the gospel. We're not changing on the core principles. Some of the way that we approach some things might change. Some of these other things, they may genuinely change. That's just going to happen in life. You're always changing. Your life today is different than what your life was a year ago. And y'all know this. I don't have to pontificate on that. You know this. But, beloved, there are still the same core principle truths that we have to stand upon. And the church in Galatia had obviously been erring from that and had chosen to go different ways. Even Peter himself was going a different way than what he ought to based on other people that had come into his life. And Paul's having to remind them, you stay on the word of God. You stay in what Jesus Christ has done. You stay in the promise that was given unto Abraham. It's not by the law that the fulfillment was made. It's but that through the promise that was given unto Abraham that we have faith because it was by promise, not by law. It was by promise that we have been given all of these things. Beloved, that's what we cling to. That's what we hold to is the promises of God. I love that song, Standing on the Promises of God. And last week, that's exactly what we were talking about, was standing fast, wherefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made, hath made us free, and being unentangled again with the yoke of bondage. We discussed freedom truly does come with a price. How many times I've heard somebody that's been in the military saying freedom doesn't come free. And beloved, how much that you and I as Christians should know freedom does not come free, but that Christ paid the cost of it all for us. But even as much as he did, y'all, we have to take the stand sometimes. We covered all of this last week, so finally we find ourselves in verse 7 this morning. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading and reverencing of the Word of God? We're reading a shorter passage this morning. If you're willing and able, you don't have to, but if you're willing and able, we invite you to stand for the reading and reverencing of the Word of God in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. 
And you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Let us go to the, you may be seated this morning. Once you are seated, we will go to the Lord in prayer once more. God, we thank you for this precious portion of Scripture this morning. We pray that you be with us. We pray that you open our minds, our ears, every bit about us, God, that we would be receptive of your word, that you would plant it in us and graft it in us, God, that in due season you would bring forth the fruit that you would have it to about. Father, we pray that any talents you ever give us, Father, may it be multiplied in our lives and not simply buried in the ground. But, Father, would you cause this fruit to bear forth richly in our lives, day in and day out, of God. Father, we pray that you would get all the honor and glory to your name as you feed your lambs and feed your sheep. We pray it all in thy son, Jesus Christ. A wonderful name. Amen and amen. So this morning, in case you can't tell, that's a short passage of scripture. And frankly, I'm going to go ahead and tell you so they're going to be longer-winded. I intend to be short-winded, but it's a glorious, wonderful passage that we're dealing with this morning. We're still standing on the heels of what Paul is communicating, talking about standing fast, talking about the hope of righteousness that we hope of righteousness that we have that is yet to come. Beloved, that we are looking to something that is greater. Yes, as even the saints, as even those in the Old Testament were looking for that which is greater, you and I are still looking for that city which we shall dwell. It said that Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, beloved, the new Jerusalem that we talk about, that's ultimately the goal that we have. We have that goal of being with Jesus, whatever that may be. We have complications. We have different views. What does it mean? Do I, th I think it's going to be this way. I think it's going to be that way. I don't know everything about what heaven's going to be like. I know some of the things that are going to be up there because he's told me about them, but I know they do not begin to compare with what it shall be in that day. And beloved, that's the hope that we have. We are always a forward-looking people. And I love, as we were singing, we'll work till Jesus comes. Do you notice that most of that song is about dying? That most of the lyrics in that song and the verses are about dying. Most of the literature are about pointing you to something that is forward. And then you get into the cross and it's or into the chorus and it's paradoxical. It's, it's in this nature that it's telling the story about what it's going to be when we die and the things that we're going to endure when we die. But in the chorus it says, we'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. Beloved, I think that that's what Paul is doing here, is he's showing us the paradox of this relationship. And somebody asked me yesterday, had breakfast with Nicholas Dedman, who's been here for us a few times, and what a blessing it was to catch up with him. And he asked me, he said, what have you been learning from the book of Galatians? And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've learned anything necessarily new. I've been reminded of some things, and I've been recomforted by some things, and I don't ever know how to express it, but I'm like, I've seen how paradoxical life is. I've seen how Paul is always using one example to show a better example. He's showing a fallacy in our beliefs in order to bring us to a greater picture. And beloved, that's exactly what he's doing here is he's showing all the fallacies of these people in the church of Galatia trusting in something that is lesser than Christ. Trusting that even as the law, and the law was good. 
Let us not look to the Old Testament and say that the law was bad. There was nothing bad about the law. There was nothing hindering about the law. And yet Jesus was the only one that could fill it. What does it mean that he fulfilled it? He filled it full. There's nothing left to be fulfilled. He filled it full was what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, did. But even still, there was the promise that was given unto Abraham that we're living toward. They were wanting to dwell in the law when ultimately what they were supposed to be resting in was dwelling in Christ himself because he was the promised seed of Abraham. We were reading in Psalm 89, and Psalm 89 is just a curious place to land us this morning. I love how God works things out. Couldn't have planned that if we tried. How God lands us in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is the last psalm in the third book of the Psalms. In book one of the Psalms, it's about 1 through maybe 40, 41, something like that. I think it's chapter book two starts in 42 maybe. But it's somewhere in that frame. In book one, we have the glorious Psalms of David, and there's so many wonderful things. And it's it's a lot of it showing the personality of God and the personal relationship that we have with him and just the nature of how eminently God is before us. But then in book two and three, things take a turn. Book one's kind of a high book. It's got a very low point in chapter 22. But in chapters, or in book two and three of the Psalms, they're kind of sadder Psalms. They're always rejoicing and hoping in God. They're always landing in God. But honestly, the life of Israel seems to be in a very negative place. If things are bad and you want to read something, counterintuitively, you might want to go read book two and three of the Psalms. It might depress you for a little while. I don't know why it is, but people have a tendency that when, when they're feeling down, when they're feeling out, you know what people have a tendency in this world to do? They listen to sad music. It makes no sense. You'd think you'd want to live, listen to upbeat music. You'd think you'd want to listen to something that, that lifts your spirits up. And some people say that's what you're supposed to do. If you want to feel better, listen to happier music. It will make you feel better. Yet there seems to be something in most of us that when we're in one of these sadder times, when we're in one of these rougher times, we go to listen to the sadder music. Beloved, I think that God has got a certain inclination in us to do that. I don't think that that's an accident. As broken and as fallen of a world as what we live in, I think that actually may be a good godly indication within us is that sometimes we need to recognize the despair of our situation before we can recognize how great that our hope is. At the end of book three of the Psalms, it's about as low as the Psalms get because hallelujah, praise God, we're about to be walking through some of the wonderful Psalms, some of the Psalms of Moses, some of, or the Psalm of Moses, and some of these wonderful things that just these Psalms that proclaim God in such a way and proclaim his majesty in such a way, it'll just be a lifting up experience but we've had to go through the bad in order to get lifted up we've had to go through all of these different things and that's exactly what Psalm 89 was landing on it was a beautiful retelling that the promise is through the seed of David and as we learned that Paul taught us how to interpret the seed of Abraham as being the seed individually not all of his offspring but ultimately the offspring of Christ Jesus which was to come if that's the way that we're supposed to interpret the Old Testament then I assume we're supposed to interpret that with David that the ruler of David's offspring, that the offspring that was going to rule on his throne forever would be Christ Jesus, which was to come. That he ends Psalm 89. Psalm 89 ends with the glorious hope of Jesus. It took a bad turn. It took a sour turn. There was a dramatic event in that text, and yet God lifts it up for our good so that we know that we may rest and trust in him. Paul has walked through how persecution happens in the lives of these. And he says, ye did run well. Who did hinder you? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? He said you did run well. He said you were on the pathway. You were doing what was right. How many of you have found yourselves at some point doing what was right, but then somebody hindered you? Somebody got in my way. I love when people say somebody almost made me lose my religion. 
don't know why we all say that. Some of you are guilty of saying that. Some of you know this morning that you're guilty of saying such and such nearly made me lose my religion. I nearly lost my religion over this thing. And you know what? I imagine we're all guilty of that at some point. We talk about losing our religion. Well, beloved, I understand why we say that because there come hindrances in our lives. I've been on traffic for the last couple weeks, so I'm just going to continue that example real quick. It might be my temptation when somebody tries to hit me in this terror at a four-way stop, not stopping, that I might get a little upset. And I may be inclined to lose my religion because somebody has hindered me. But, beloved, I know that I'm supposed to obey the truth. I know just because somebody else in my life comes into my life and causes me to do this thing, I know that just because the pressures of this world are around about me, I know that I'm supposed to obey the truth. I have never once been relieved of obeying the truth. Now, speed limits. We've had this conversation the last couple of weeks. Don't do well with it. This man will tell you that. He knows that. He likes to bring it up in my life. But I don't like speed limits. They're an act of love. And we've talked about that. That if we just didn't have speed limits, you'd have somebody out there that was going 120 miles down the road, 120 miles per hour down the road, down a road that should be 35 and nearly run a little girl and, a, and her father off the side of the road. We might have that story of something nearly getting killed on the side of Shed Road here. We've had that story of somebody running way too fast. There's reason that these laws are in place. It's an act of love. That the laws are not made as hindrances to us, but they're actually made and to be communicated as acts of love. Now, it, we live in an imperfect world, so it's never done perfectly right. I'm not saying that it is, but we live in a world to where we're supposed to obey the laws because they're for the good of us and they're for the good of others. And if we truly love one another, maybe I need to be more loving. Maybe I need to follow the speed limits better because I need to love my neighbor better. Maybe I need to slow down because I could cause somebody else to be in a wreck, because I could cause trouble for somebody else. Maybe that's what obedience to the truth is, is that we don't lead somebody else astray. Beloved, in so many churches... And frankly, in churches this morning, frankly, in congregations today, decisions are having to be made. Are we going to obey the truth of the Word of God, or are we going to obey the culture? And that's just the way that it is. I've had so many friends and so many loved ones that I love, that I love dearly. Their life works different according to the truth. You know what? I still love them. I have no problem with them with this world. I still want to share with them Jesus. I still have no problem with them at all. I love them, and all that I care for them is that they may know Jesus. But, beloved, in his church, we're going to stand upon truth. In his church, we're not going to let anything go. Beloved, it says Jesus loves everybody, and we know that Jesus does love them. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave us only God Son, that whosoever believeth in him might have life everlasting. Beloved, there are qualifications to that love. It is not a love that is just that it says that Jesus loves everybody in this whole world and beloved that hell should not exist. But if we continue to believe that hell does exist, there's been a problem throughout the world. Hell disappeared from most of it. And the problem with hell disappearing is, is that as soon as hell begins to disappear from the conversation, heaven soon disappears from the conversation. I saw somebody earlier remark this, and they said, pay attention to the Bible. Pay attention to how, rather, how somebody talks. When they talk about our Lord and Savior, do they refer to him as Jesus or do they refer to him as Christ? So that'll tell you a lot about somebody. Are they somebody who's talking about his humanity, everything about him as being Jesus, or are they talking about Christ and that he's the Messiah and everything? They were using it as a negative example to show that somebody that just refers to him as Christ is not that loving of a person. I sat there and I chewed on that. I said, how does the Bible refer to him? Because surely Paul does say in most of the New Testament, he's referred to as Christ outside of the four Gospels. 
So now what is the difference? Why is he referred to so much as Jesus? Why are we seeing so much of his humanity? But then we see Christ. Why the name change and so much of it? Why are we called Jesus or Christians instead of Jesusans or something like that? I wouldn't know how to say that word, but if we're going to make up one, what would that be? Why are we not referred to as just his humanity? Because, beloved, as much as he was a real human being that really did, in fact, walk this earth and that he is truly God and that he is truly man, he's also, again, the first part, he is truly God, is that he is the Lord and Savior over all these things. He is our Savior. He is our Messiah. He is our Lord. He is the one that we are to be following. Beloved, we are to obey Christ. We don't get to just let everybody in in certain positions. We welcome all into those doors. Everybody is welcome through those doors. Not everybody's welcome into membership. Not everybody who comes through those doors is automatically welcomed into membership. There's some qualifications before you're added to the church. Beloved, on the first Sundays of the month, which I always look forward to, I love when we do this as a congregation, when we partake in the Lord's table together, there's some qualifications. I'm going to fence that table. As long as I'm here, we're practicing what we call close communion. It is that somebody of a similar faith, that if I had my dear friend Dwayne McManus here, who he's a Methodist, he's permitted this table because I know, one, he's actually been baptized. I do know that about him. And I know that he's a member in good faith and standing with his congregation. I'm not going to deny him access just because he happens to call himself a Methodist and I happen to call myself a Baptist. He's still welcome to this table. But what about somebody that's an unbeliever? What about somebody that's never professed a hope in Jesus Christ? No, we fence the table against that. We're not going to allow that to happen. What about if persistent sin is happening in somebody's life, a persistent sin coming into somebody's life? There may be a point that we have to withdraw fellowship from them and that they're no longer permitted to come to this table. Beloved, there are qualifications for this table. I'm not ultimately the decider, but beloved, there's some decisions to be made. We must be those who obey the truth. Let it not be said of us as it was said to this church in Galatia that you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Ms. Tara and I, we often talk about this. I'm very, very careful when somebody says, God told me this. I'm like, oh, really? That's honestly my response. I'm like, oh, really? God told you that. How sure are you that God told you that? Because if you're going to say God told you that, you better make sure it lines up with the Word of God. Because one thing I can promise you is, and I believe God still speaks. I'm not denying it. I still believe God speaks, and I believe he clearly speaks to us through his word. And that if you were to want to know what to do in your life, get your nose in his book, and he'll tell you exactly. Plea and cling unto him and cleave unto him, and he will instruct you on what you are supposed to do. There is an answer for it if you are reading and studying diligently in his word. Nevertheless, I have experienced moments in my life where it felt as clear as anything that God was leading me in a certain direction, and I cannot deny it careful what I say about this. But I can also tell you this. There have been times in my life where I thought it might be the Lord leading on something. And I got into the midst of it and I figured out real quick that was Zach leading into that. That was somebody else leading into that. That was not God leading into that. Notice that Paul says, who did hinder you? God's never going to lead us astray. God's never going to lead us astray. Now God might actually lead us into a situation that we're persecuted for. As a matter of fact, he said if we're not persecuted, that's one of the evidences that we know that we belong to him is actual persecution. Beloved, how many of us can say we've actually been persecuted? Maybe not like our brothers and sisters in China and Cuba and some of these other countries. But you have faced, obst you have faced obstacles in your life. You have faced restrictions in your life. I'm careful on that word persecution, but there are things that you have faced in your life that you have been opposed for. And if you haven't, I would submit to you, I'm questioning whether you're truly one of his or not. If you've never been opposed in any of your beliefs, I'm not so sure that you truly belong to one of them. There is opposition in our lives. 
there are hindrances that come into our lives, but our responsibility is to obey the truth that we may continue to run well. It says in verse 8, it says, That persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. That he's the one that calls you. He's the one that woos you. He's the one that draws you through the means of his spirit. If you know that God is speaking to you through his spirit, if you're saying that God is speaking to me through his spirit, you know that he's the one that is calling you. He's calling you to obey truth. Again, I may mention that there are churches this morning that are making decisions. Beloved, I've heard sides of this argument. I've heard those that argue in a certain way that have nothing to do with the Bible. Now, I might side with the vote that they would side. I might vote the same way that they're voting. But the means behind it is wrong. The approach behind it is wrong. Let us not get wrong to try to stay right. Let us be dwelling in truth. Let us be dwelling in righteousness. We may have to make a stand, but don't let us do it with the wrong attitude. I love listening. Of course, I know my respect. Brother Bagwell, he, how he was talking about it, he said, one time I just did it wrong. He said, I was right. He said, I still believe it was right, but I had a wrong attitude about it. I had a bad attitude about it. And he was preaching through the Beatitudes. And he was relating that to meekness. Beloved, when we stand in the truth and we stand against opposition, if the Spirit is wooing us into a decision, we know that we're going to do it in his fashion. Beloved, I've made stands in my life, but I did it with a terrible attitude, and I was wrong for the attitude that I had. I did not do it in meekness. Did I take what I still think is the right stand? Yes. But I did it the wrong way. And to this day, I feel the weight of that. To this day, it still haunts me sometimes. But, beloved, there's forgiveness in God, too. And sometimes I need to step away from that hauntedness. Sometimes I need to step away from what it is. I let too many of the ghosts in the past haunt me sometimes. The only ghost that should be dwelling in my life is the Holy Ghost. I know that's cheesy. But, y'all, I just mean that this morning. Sometimes we let the things of the past haunt us. And I think that's what was happening in the life of Galatians. They saw a life that once was lived. They saw a life that once could be measured by days and times and months and all the different calendars. They could live according to the calendar because the Jewish, they had this thing, and if I'll just stay in this role long enough, if I'll just stay doing the right things in the right ways enough times, I'll be right with God. And so many of them didn't even believe in God himself. So many of them wanted to do what they saw to be the right things, but they never did it with the right heart. They wanted to follow the law, but they didn't want to follow God. They didn't ultimately believe in God. Their trust was that the law was what was saving them. But the love of the law never saved anybody. Nowhere in the, in the Old Testament do you see where the law saved anybody. Sacrifices were made, which were all ultimately pointing to the sacrifice of Christ himself. What they had to do was obey God. What the law ultimately was was a trust of, are you going to obey God or are you not going to obey God? And he's going to handle that same thing here in this text. Let me proceed. It says in verse 9, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I love one of the common things that's to do, and I don't know, I mean, Tyler Shannon, I'm not doing this for y'all's wedding because I don't know how to make sourdough, so y'all are out of luck for me. But a lot of times, wedding gifts now are sourdough starters, and I think that's something really cool. Now, I have to find a way to let it die in my house. I mean, I've tried making bread so many times. Miss Terry loves it. I don't know why. It never tastes right to me. It's never going to meet my standards. But people are giving sourdough starters. Because it's already got a little bit of that yeast in it. It's already got some what it needs in order to make that bread rise. It's already got the contents and the ingredients in it and what it needs to make it rise. Beloved, just a little bit of beef. You just need a little bit of a starter. You don't need an endless supply of it. You just need a little bit of a starter. I've heard people of my grandfather's generation talk about how many times in biscuit bowls that they leave a little bit from the day before in the biscuit bowl so that when they went back to the next day to start making the biscuits, that it would automatically begin to rise because of what was already left in there. Beloved, can I tell you that it's good and I love a good biscuit. Thank you, Todd. 
went from making last night. I enjoyed last night. Can't deny it. They're good. I just love them. And do you know my problem with sin is the same one? It just takes a little bit of hold over from the day before, and that's in a room I hold day the next day. It just takes a whole, just a little bit of hanging on to yesterday's sin and bringing it into today that will cause me a whole lot of problems. I know of a church, uh, of an almost church plant one time. They almost planted a church, and they jokingly wanted to name the church New Lump Baptist Church. They said, we needed the new lump. And I think it's also from another passage, but that's all I've been able to think about this week. They almost wanted to plant a church with the name of the new lump Baptist church because they knew that the lump that they were in had been leavened. And that it just took a little bit of leaven and it leavened the whole lump. Beloved, careful that the little bitty sin in your life become a greater sin in your life. Careful that on a greater level, the little bitty sin that enters into the life of Shed Road Baptist Church, that it'll ruin the rest of us. Careful that just a little bit of a bad attitude, a little bit of a lack of meekness, doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. If you're not dwelling in meekness, doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. As a matter of fact, kind of the, the pulpiteers of the world, we want them to have a big presence. Kind of the bigger the presence the pastor has, sometimes the bigger the deal it becomes. And the more dynamic the pastor is, sometimes the bigger the church will grow. Beloved, if it's on the basis of my dynamics, we need to end this right now. If it's on the basis of one individual's personality, being dynamic, being boastful, being powerful, we're about the wrong things. It amazes me that as we've been praying the last two weeks through the Beatitudes, every one of those is counterintuitive to us. Beloved, it's counterintuitive to us to think that a little sin would let in the whole world. That the sin in your life may ruin the whole lot of us. That's a powerful statement. That one little sin in your life can ruin your whole life. One little sin in your life may begin to ruin the rest of the life of this church. You say, would that really happen? Yes, beloved, it would. If you bring those attitudes into here, and that's what I've seen in the church. Y'all know my story. I've been a part of a church that just got destroyed because of attitude. I don't know if there's anything about doctrine. They argued that it was. We argued that it was. Everybody's arguing that it was about doctrine. The more that I've autopsied that and looked at that dead body, the more I've seen it had a lot to do with attitude. Most every one of us liked meekness. Most every one of us liked poverty and spirit. We let a little thing get in and it led in the whole lump. Those others that were talking about starting that church plant, they knew they needed a new lump. This lump is done for you. This lump had gone too far. But beloved, I love what Paul would say here. He goes on, he says in verse 10, right after verse 9, he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord. Notice he didn't say, I have confidence in you because of you. He says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. Paul is saying, I have confidence, though a little bit of leaven has crept in, though you have been hindered from obeying the truth, I have confidence through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. Paul is confident. Paul is hopeful that the Lord is going to do a work in this church of Galatians, that they would be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. It does not matter who the problem makers are. Beloved, sometimes if controversy, if strife has been brought into a church, it needs to be dealt with. One of the worst things we can do is let it fester. Put that leaven at the bottom of the bowl and expect that it's not going to make the rest of it rise up and bubble up and become permanent. Expect that it's not going to ruin the rest of it. Paul is saying that those who bring in false truths into the church, Paul is instructing us, those that trouble them, they need to be bearing their judgment. It says in verse 11, it says, And I, brethren, if I yet, be, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. 
And he goes on in verse 12, he says, I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Paul is saying, if, if I'm being persecuted for this, for what Christ did, and it's about circumcision, then I'm doing this for nothing. This, Paul, this congregation would have seen Paul in his early days of ministry, in days where he had been stricken, smitten, and afflicted by so many things. We talked about that song, and we sing that about the same. Paul had gone through so many things. Paul went through so many things. And this church of Galatians saw this, and he even said unto them, he said, I would that you would have even, I know that you even would have plucked out your own eyes and given to them. That's how much this congregation loved Paul. So for Paul to look back to them and say, I'm doing this for nothing if it's based on circumcision, he's trying to get this congregation. Do you realize how terrible this is? Do you realize how wrong you've gotten because you've gone a little bit astray? Because you've just gone a little bit astray. You've ruined the whole lot of it. Nevertheless, I have confidence through the Lord. Wow. Paul said, you almost made shipwreck of this thing. But I've got confidence through the Lord. Paul said, the one that has made the trouble needs to bear their judgment. He says, in verse 12, he says, I would that they were even cut off. It's trouble. Beloved, that's the way that we have to treat people that cause problems. That's ultimately what we have to do. Sometimes things have to be cut off. Sometimes churches are called upon to make decisions that they need to cut something off. Is it going to be fun? Is it going to be easy? No. But for the sake of the congregation, it needs to be done right. It's been sad to me to talk to some people. They don't care how wrong they get as long as they just stay right according to their standards. It's got nothing to do with God. Beloved, I see that on both sides. Whatever side of any argument you find yourself on, I find that it seems to be we always want to be divided. It just seems that we live in a world we want to be divided. My side's are right, your side's are wrong. Well, maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we both messed up. Maybe we both need to repent. Maybe we both just need to get back to Jesus. Maybe we need to be poor in spirit. Maybe we need to be free. Maybe we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Maybe. Even though we're being hindered, we need to obey the truth. But beloved, if we're ever going to obey the truth, we have to know what the truth is. And those that trouble us, they need to be as cut off. Now when Paul says this, I understand this to mean that Paul means that they're not even saved. Paul means that they need to be cut off entirely. They need to be as dead to you. They need to be done away with. They need to be cast out from your presence. It's not going to be easy. It's never easy when we encounter these situations where I love people. I know of churches again right now, just I'm hurt for them, where they love some people that think very differently than them, but they're going to have to cut them off if they're to survive. Sometimes a leg needs amputated. I saw a terrible thing yesterday. We were doing some shopping for the church. You may notice we got some new equipment in the building if you look around. It's because we're getting inspected. We had to have this new equipment, and we might not meet standards. Something was lacking, so we had to put it right. It's amazing the examples that happened. But as we were walking around the store yesterday, I saw this lady. That I could tell that she's diabetic. I could tell just by a quick glance, just down at the floor, that her legs were so damaged by diabetes that one of two things is going to happen. She's either going to lose those legs or she's going to die. The, love, the best thing that can happen to her is that she loses those legs. I've had a former teacher of mine that he had to have a coat, he had to, he had a diabetes and he had to have a toe cut off. That wasn't good enough, so he had to have a foot cut off. 
and then they had to take his leg up to his knee. I'm hoping they don't have to take it any worse because the problem is that he continues to persist living the same lifestyle that he has. Now, diabetes is a terrible thing, but there's also choices to be made. You might know that you're diabetic. You might know that you have to live differently. You might know that you have to make different dietary decisions in your life. You might know that you have a certain preclusion, a certain tendency toward a certain sin that you have to run away from. Beloved, you might know that somebody in a congregation is causing troubles that you may love them dearly, but you know that if you don't cut them off, it's going to kill the whole body. Beloved, there are problems that we have to stand on. And we have to, that even in those occasions, for look what it says in verse 13, he continues the thought. He says, for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Hallelujah, that we do have liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Sometimes service is not fun. Sometimes service is not easy. Sometimes serving somebody else means you're going to have to do a whole lot of things that just aren't fun. I love serving my community in Brandon City Schools. Never did like having to clean those bathrooms. That was a mess. I love serving them. I love being on board. I love what it meant to be plugged in and part of that community. Man, when we had to clean the bathrooms after a football game, people are gross. People, oh, we had to clean them. But you know what? It never bothered me when I loved my community. When I could think about it for just loving that community, and that's just a word. Beloved, if we love the church, and we're called to do something that's not going to be fun, if we're called to a job that's just going to stink and have a lot of difficulty cause us to sweat, cause us to pain, we might lose blood, cause it, we might get hurt, we might have to face all of these difficulties for it, by love serve one another. Do you notice that it's not in a heightened situation that Paul is saying this? That Paul is saying this in a despairing situation? That Paul is saying that somebody needs to be cut off and he's saying by love serve one another? Beloved, there's hard decisions that have to get made in churches there's some things that Shed Road that we'll have to take action on in the near future. There's some things that have to be taken, some steps that have to be taken. And beloved, it's not going to be easy. But by love, we serve one another. By love, it's actually the best step that we can make. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be fun? Absolutely not. We're going to have a good time every time we meet? No. Sometimes we'll be a little bit lower. But by love, let us serve one another that we may not serve the flesh. It says in verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Beloved, that's the fulfillment of all the law. That's how Christians are most widely known. That's how Christians are the best known is by their love. He even said that they would know us by our love for one another, that we love one another. Beloved, it does have to start here. But notice he does say his neighbor, and he defines in the Gospels who his neighbor are. He talks about his brother and his sister. He said his brother, his mother, his brother, his sister are the ones that do the will of his father. But his neighbor is everybody. It is the universal neighborhood of man. It is the universe that everybody in this world is our neighbor. Not everybody's a member of the church. Not everybody's our brother, our mother, our sister, our father in the faith. Not everybody's in the faith, but everybody is our neighbor. And we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. You mean that neighbor I don't like? Yeah, that's the one. You mean that neighbor that gives me so much, so much trouble every single time I'm over there? Yeah, that's the one you're probably, probably supposed to love the most. That's the one you're probably going to have the hardest time loving, but just love on them anyway. Love it, can I confess something to you? There are some people in my life that are hard to love. This is hard love. 
It's not easy. Do you know what happens when I begin to pray for that? My spirit gets meaner. Not because of what I'm doing. I, you know, I can't do that of myself. I, I'm not that way. I'm independent. And I'm stuck. And I've got all these other problems. When I begin to pray for them, something changes in me. Beloved, are you praying for your neighbors? When you ride by their house, are you praying for them? When you're on the job with them, are you praying? I, I don't think I'm going to know this in heaven. I'm, I'm saying this on my own. I don't think I will know, but I, I wonder what it would be like to get to heaven and know those who have earnestly prayed for me. I wonder what it would be like just to be able to get there and know those that earnestly prayed for me. I wonder how many people that I just have a hard time. I wonder how many of them have genuinely prayed for me. Not out of mouths, no. Sometimes we pray out of mouths. There's even a song that I know of saying, I pray for you, and I pray you break trauma out, and I pray all these other terrible things happen to you. That's the kind of prayer they're doing. That's not the prayer we're after. We're after the prayer that is genuine. We're after the prayer that is to love our neighbors as ourselves. You notice it doesn't say to love yourself. The cry of this generation is to say that you must love yourself. You gotta know yourself, you gotta love yourself, you gotta love yourself, you gotta love yourself. Love, I don't think we have a problem loving ourselves. Now sometimes people are mean to themselves. Sometimes people are rough on themselves. It's because something's missing. Something's not right. I'll acknowledge that. We really don't have to learn how to love ourselves. That comes naturally to us. What does not come naturally to us is loving our neighbors as ourselves. When somebody opposes us, when somebody tries to hinder us, our greatest thing that we can do is pray for them. Pray for them that despitefully use you. It'll be heaping coals of fire upon their head. We've missed the point. If that's the attitude we come in with, that it'll heap coals of fire on their head and we mean it meanly and we mean it bigotedly and we mean it somehow with malice that we don't pray for them that God will get a hold to them. Beloved, I hope that we would never pray for anybody. I heard it growing up all the time and I understood they meant it in a certain way. They said, well, I pray that your covers are too short and your bed's hard and all these other things. And I don't know why. It just never hit me right. I, I know what it means. They, they wanted somebody to be troubled. They wanted somebody to come to the Lord. I know what they meant, but it never landed well. Beloved, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Are we desperate enough for our neighbors? Are we desperate enough for our neighborhoods that we are earnestly in prayer for them? Are we desperate enough for them that we're going to share the gospel with them, though they may oppose us, though they may not like us? Are we going to share the message with them? Do we love them enough to live a life before them that even when they upset us supremely, are we going to love them? We had a new neighbor move in. He bought my uncle's land. And he was wondering that might cause some difficulties between us and them. I remember telling him, I said, well, I said, the only problem we've ever got against you is you're a Florida fan. We don't understand you. And I meant that. I, I love Kenny. I love, I, I love his wife. I love that family. They, they're just good people. I don't know them that well. I wish I knew them better. But they just seem to be nice folks. I don't have a problem with them. He was worried we might have problems. And I understand why he was worried we might have some problems. But I just told him, I said, Evan, you're a Florida fan. I don't understand it. And I just said it jokingly because, frankly, I mean, I hate to admit it, but I, I don't care that much about football. I mean, I want Georgia to win, but I, I, okay. It's just football. I don't care. I like a NASCAR race, but I, I really don't care who wins anymore. My driver retired long ago. But, beloved, you know what does matter? Is that I love my neighbor and that I pray for him. Is that you love your neighbor and that you love them as yourself. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be hard. The life that Paul has put it in is a difficult life. And if it wasn't hard enough in verse 14, well, let's just read verse 15. 
But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. My neighbor did me wrong. I just wanted y'all to know how he did me wrong. I about I mean I can run my mouth about my neighbor so fast. I can tell you every little problem with my neighbor. Tell you everything I've ever done wrong against me. My tendency is to bite and devour them. I can fight that one day. I can pick you apart. Oh my stars, I can pick everything you do apart. And you know what you can probably do? You can probably pick me apart. We can just sit here and there and there'll be nothing left of either one of us by picking each other apart. Beloved, if we bite and devour one another, take heed lest yourself or lest you be consumed. Again, y'all heard me talk about so many times I've experienced that. Where we just bit and devoured one another so much. Somebody did. Tom Rainer wrote a book called The Autopsy of the Deceased Church. And in that book, he acknowledged some of the things. He, he looked at several churches that died. And he looked and he said, What happened in these churches? Are there any patterns in, in churches and local congregations? Are there any patterns that died? And you know what one of them was? One of the chief patterns that is in a church that dies? It gets inward focused. It gets inward focused. And everything becomes worried about itself. Everything becomes worried about the property. Everything becomes worried about just the people. And there's no outward focus. Beloved, if you miss verse 14, verse 15 is going to kill us. If we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves, if we're not looking outside of these walls and saying, God, how can you use us in our neighborhoods? God, how can you use me to love my neighbors? And I don't always know what that means. Sometimes that means listening to my neighbors. Sometimes that means listening to my neighbor cry, moan, and complain of me just keeping my mouth shut. Sometimes it means giving them something to drink, giving them a cool cup of water. Sometimes I don't know what it's going to mean in your life. I don't know what your neighbors come to your life and doing, but beloved, if you don't love your neighbors, we'll bite and devour one another. If we come into this congregation and we only make it about ourselves and the separations between us, we'll grow into factions. And I tell you that that's not a problem we should really that I've ever seen. I don't see us in good factions. I don't see one trying to be better than another in this congregation. I see that in a lot of churches. And the problem a lot of us have is I don't care if I'm not Christ. I just want to be better than you. But the love of God wants to be more like Christ. Not to be better than one another. To have an ongoing and meek spirit about us. I'm guilty of this, y'all. I can bind the power of but, beloved, it will consume us one another. We'll tear each other apart. We will either be loving our neighbors, looking outside of us, or we'll get so internally minded that we'll pick one another apart. I pray that Shed Road, we'd be careful with this. That we wouldn't pick one another apart. If you see a problem in somebody's life, pray for them. If you see a problem in somebody's life, is it actually something you need to address? Is it something that you have the relationship with them that you could address in your life? Is it something that you can do out of love for your neighbors? Is it something you can do out of love for one another? Is it something you can do to serve one another? Beloved, let us always be mindful of these things, that we would be more outward focused than we would pick and devour one another apart. I pray that we would always know that love is not defined on the basis of what we allow necessarily, and that we allow everybody in. That's not Love is ultimately defined by action. Love is ultimately defined by truth and action is the only way that I can see this. Is that Paul is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Is that we're supposed to be doers of the word. 
And we can gather here every week, but if we're never sharing with our neighbors, we're never sharing with our coworkers, with fellow students, with fellow people at the grocery store, if we're never sharing the hope of Christ when we have opportunities to do so, we're not loving them. We'll pick and follow one another. Pray that we would be mindful of these things as well. Let us pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. God, this is a hard passage of Scripture in so many ways. I can't talk for anybody else in the congregation, but I confess my own passage of God. I pray that you'd help me. I do know the tendency of us as Christians, God, we'll pick and devour one another apart from worship. Lord, I pray that we would be known for our love for one another. I pray that we'd be known for our love for you. I pray that we'd be known for our love for our neighbors. When somebody looks upon us, they're able to see you, God. Not that they're able to see us better than being some congregation down the road. But God, that they're just able to see a congregation that looks like you. God, we know it won't always be easy, but we pray that you'd give us the strength in the times when it's not. We pray that we would glory in you, that we would rejoice and be glad always in you and you'd give us opportunity of God. Father, this morning we land this with just praying that you would Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, that you'd help us not to bite and devour one another. And we pray to walk as you'd have us to walk. We pray this in thy son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. Amen. And amen.